Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you because it changes us. It changes the way that we think. It changes the way that we look at the world. And it changes the way that we look at ourselves. For Lord, your word is like a mirror. Father, we read in your word how the children of Israel, when they left Egypt, they melted down all their mirrors. And those mirrors became the laver. This big pool for washing, for cleansing. And Lord, your word is exactly that. It's a mirror that exposes us just as we are. But Lord, it's also there to cleanse us. And Lord, we pray that we would be washed by the water of your word, that we would become a people pleasing to you in every way. Father, as we study this book of Jeremiah this morning, oh Lord, open our eyes. Help us to see, Lord, the foolishness of trusting man, trusting our own selves. And Lord, how much better it is, despite the struggles and the troubles that we experience, how much better it is, Lord, to walk your plan and your path for our lives. Lord, inspire us, I pray, as we study this this morning. Open our ears and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if I was to pick a book of the Bible that I would say is one of my favorites, this would definitely be on my top five list. Uh, and it's difficult because there are so many books in the Bible that are just so wonderful. But Jeremiah, for many years now, has been such a special book. There's so many verses in here. I think probably I've got more verses underlined in Jeremiah than almost any other book. Um, there's just such a depth of teaching on so many levels as we go through. We're going to go through and spend the majority of our time looking at the book of Jeremiah. Uh, and in the last couple of minutes, we're just going to have a quick uh, talk about Lamentations, another book that Jeremiah uh, wrote as well. Um, really dealing with the same type of themes, um, but very much it's kind of a funeral dirge, as it were, for, for Jerusalem, uh, for Israel. Um, so we'll just close by having a very brief look at Lamentations at the end of this, uh, as it kind of very much fits with the theme of these things. Well, the book of Jeremiah itself, we're told in the, the first verse that it's the words of Jeremiah, he's the author, no question about that, uh, the son of Hilkiah of Anathoth, that's the town he comes from. Um, but we also find that in chapter 36, verse 4, uh, Jeremiah's uh, secretary, or scribe if you like, um, ends up writing a lot of these things for him. So we were told that Barak wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all of the words of Jehovah uh, upon a roll or scroll and so on. So that's something that we see. Now, interestingly, there's more known about Jeremiah than probably any other Old Testament prophet. We're given a lot of details about him, his family, background and so on. So just some of the things that we do know about Jeremiah. Um, the time of all of these things, he was born around about 650 um, to about 645 BC. Um, so not long, but a little bit after the time of Isaiah, who we were looking at last week. He was born in this place, Anathoth. It's difficult to say that without sounding like you've got a lisp, isn't it? Anathoth. Uh, this small little priestly village, just uh, a few miles northeast of Jerusalem, uh, in the territory of Benjamin. Uh, and Jeremiah ministers for 45 years faithfully. Now that may sound great. I mean, we'd all love to have a full-time ministry for 45 years. It sounds good until you look at some of the, the things that Jeremiah ended up uh, being put through. His father, Hilkiah, was a priest as well. And we know that from scripture, not just this book, but elsewhere. Um, his name, Jehovah, actually, or his name means rather, Jehovah has appointed, or whom Jehovah sends forth. Such an apt name for the ministry that he's been given here. Now, he's known, and you'll probably see commentaries and books talk about Jeremiah as the weeping prophet. Now, it's not because of weakness or fear on his part. He wasn't crying uh, in, in fear or anything, but simply because of the compassion 
that he had for his nation, desperately desiring them to repent and return to the Lord. Certainly he belonged to the upper class, if you sense, of, of the, the, the people of those days. Um, he was respected uh, in the community. Uh, we know that partly because uh, to have his own personal secretary, he had money to buy property, all sorts of things you know, indicate that he was a man of means. And yet that didn't stop him or divert him from this calling that God puts upon his life. Even though, as we'll see, a couple of times he tried to get out of that calling. We see he has good knowledge of history, political life, knowledge of earlier scripture uh, clearly a love of God's word uh, about this man as well uh, understood things to do with the Egyptian religion so we just see that he had a very thorough education he was no fool in terms of his ministry well he's called to the the, the prophetic uh, mission that God gives him at a very early age a lot of commentators think around about 21 years some even suggest uh, in his uh, teenage years uh, he was called to this ministry um, Jeremiah no doubt encouraged Josiah's national reformation now we'll talk a bit about that in a moment regarding the history but clearly he was a really godly individual um, that wanted things of God now, not just for himself but for his nation he was certainly bold and daring as a preacher very uncompromising uh, the things that he says um, you know, is certainly politically incorrect uh, to use today's vernacular uh, but he was also very sensitive to the spiritual needs of his people um, but definitely he rebelled against the false religion you know, and uh, that's one of the reasons I love Jeremiah. He was so quick to speak out. You know, we have this idea, don't we, today in the church? Oh, you mustn't say that. You know, and people will quote the misquote verses from Samuel about speaking of about, uh, uh, seeking against the Lord's anointed. You know, I mustn't harm the Lord's anointed. Well, David was about to kill Saul in the context, and that's why David kind of steps back from that. You know, we're not talking about killing false prophets and people that stand up in the pulpits today that uh, get it wrong. But Jeremiah spoke out against those people. And I think it's right and proper that we do the same. You know, that doesn't mean to suggest for a minute that we think we've got it all right. We're growing and learning. But when things clearly contravene scripture, they should be exposed. And Jeremiah did that in his day. <clears throat> his message basically was that God was going to give the nation into the hands of the Babylonians. And that nobody should resist. This was something that Jeremiah makes very clear. God is going to do. If you try and resist it, you're standing in God's way. God was going to bring judgment. As a result of that, he's rejected by his own family, townsmen and nation. In fact, even his family end up effectively hiring an assassin against him to try and kill him. You know, um, somebody recently said to me, talking about this, but, you know, no church plant that we've ever been involved in has ever gone that bad, that your family try and hire an assassin against you. You know, we struggle sometimes in the work that God calls us to, and there are challenges, of course, but you look at Jeremiah, and it's a whole different level, the things that he endured, and it should give us great encouragement ourselves. Certainly he was imprisoned. He was actually lowered down a well and left there, effectively to die. Um, but eventually they release him. Certainly beaten, placed in stocks, assaulted. All really with the intent, intent to silence him, to kill him, um, to stop him speaking. Um, tragically, he preached to deaf ears. And received only hate in return to the great love that he showed to his nation. You know, I think Jeremiah is a great example for us. Um, that, as I said before, the word success should be removed from our vocabulary as Christians. It's not about success. Jeremiah was the most unsuccessful prophet in the book. If we measure it by the world standard. But by God's standard, oh, he was very successful. Because he was obedient. 
And that's the thing. It's not about success, it's about obedience. Are we willing to obey God? How many people did Jeremiah convert or turn in his day? None. Do we really have any record of? But what about since? What about down through the ages as people have read these words and have been challenged and brought to tears as they see the heart of this man speaking for God? There's some key verses that kind of give you the the theme really. In chapter 3, 12 and 13, we just have this idea of, you know, really calling to Israel to return, backsliding Israel, says Jehovah. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against Jehovah. This isn't something you've done against yourselves, this is against God, your creator. Chapter 6, verse 16, another key verse, stand you in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way and walk therein? It's a challenge to look at your life now. Look at the ways that things were when you were walking with God. And compare. And realize that it's so much better when you're on God's path than your own. And in chapter 31 we have this great verse. Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love, says God. Therefore, with loving kindness I have drawn thee. That's the way that God leads us. In the book of Romans we're told it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And that's the God that Jeremiah is trying to communicate to the nation. A God that has loved the nation, that has done everything he could, that has drawn them, that has led them. And yet they still rebel and walk away from him. Well, some of the key words in the the book, backslide or backsliding, the idea there is used 13 times, a very key phrase. We kind of use that very erroneously today. I mean, no doubt there are people who have been born again, genuinely, that backslide. Jeremiah addresses those type of people. And maybe some other time, we'll see where we get to at the end of this year, maybe we'll come back and study this book, I don't know, we'll see where the Lord leads us. But, you know, the, the real issue of backsliding amongst Christians. But we tend to refer to backsliders today as people who were never really saved and have gone back into the world. You know, maybe they came to church a few times and then they stopped coming and we say, well, they're backsliding. No, very often it's the wheat and the tares. They were never born again in the first place. And Satan has snatched that seed away, just as we read about in Matthew 13. So we need to be careful how we use the phrase, but Jeremiah does use it appropriately. Another word we find is forsaken or forsake. That is used 24 times throughout the book. Um, Return, this kind of pleading, is used 47 times. One of the the major kind of uh, repeating words that come up in the book. Probably the key phrase is, thus saith the Lord. Used 15 times. Again, this is God's heart. And it's not in a kind of a, a dictatorial command kind of way. It's a pleading. It's because God is saying this, that we should listen and repent. And again, the key thought, well, that Judah must pay for her sins um, by defeat and exile at the hands of Babylon. You know, there's got to be a price paid for sin. God is a just God. And God makes it very clear through scripture that that which we reap, we will sow. So, as we move on, some of the key characters, well, there's only really a few. We've obviously got Jeremiah himself, uh, clearly God's faithful prophet through all this. Barak, uh, who's his uh, devoted secretary, faithful scribe. Jehoiakim, one of the two kings that we read about in this book very much. He was a wicked king of Judah, contributed very much to a downfall and, dis- and died in disgrace. Um, and then this Zedekiah, uh, the final king of uh, Judah and uh, he had moments where he wanted to do better but he just kind of lacked that moral fortitude and courage to do so Uh, and it's finally under his reign that Judah falls to the Babylonians well in the 
early years, Jeremiah's early years, Assyria was dominant. Um, but it was rapidly declining. You remember we were looking last time with Isaiah that Assyria were that powerful nation and so on. Well, Assyria had come and they'd captured the northern kingdom uh, in 722 BC. Well, we're kind of 90 years further on uh, when a lot of these things now take place. Uh, In 612 BC, Nineveh, the head of the Assyrian Empire, this great grand capital, they've uncovered much of it, the archaeological ruins, uh, Layard and many other uh, archaeologists have uh, uncovered much there, again corroborating and proving the biblical account to be true. Um, But Nineveh fell into the combined forces of the Babylonians, the Medes, and also the Scythians. And the contest for world power at this time was between Babylon and Egypt. Egypt had kind of risen to some degree of power again. Uh, of course, it would never ever get back to the state, state as it had as a nation. And again, that had actually been prophesied. Um, but Babylon and Egypt are the two. Now, just looking at the kings and so on to give us an idea, Josiah is this really good king of Israel. He brings about wonderful reforms. They find a copy of the scriptures in the temple as they're undergoing a refurbishment, a clean-up project. And they bring this before Josiah. He reads it, repents, and gets a whole nation, sends out priests around the nation to get them back to the word of God effectively uh, and establishes national worship and so on. But he dies in this very strange battle against Pharaoh, uh, this Egyptian king who's coming up and doesn't want to deal with uh, Josiah at all. Uh, Josiah is not a concern of Necho, but for some reason, and we've maybe touched on that, I think, in Chronicles, Josiah decides he's going to go out in battle anyway, and he dies. Now, following him, the people end up putting Jehoaz, his son, on the throne, but he reigns for just three months. This is in about 609 BC. Um, and when Pharaoh Necho is on his way back, he comes and collects Jehoaz and takes him down to Egypt. So he has a very, very short reign. And then we have this Jehoiakim uh, put on the throne. He reigns for 11 years during this time. Now in the third year of his reign, which takes us to 606 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes and lays the first siege against Jerusalem and takes away Daniel and the other princes and so on at that point. And then from that point, uh, the nation becomes subject to the Babylonian uh, regime and rule and so on. Well, eventually, um, when he uh, dies, Jehoiakim um, becomes the next king, um, or so Jehoiachin, sorry, um, his son. And then he's also known as Jeconiah. Now, this is the one that... Um, Jeremiah speaks about Jeremiah 22 verse 30 and we read there of this blood curse that's placed upon it because he's such a wicked king and God says none of your descendants will sit on the throne now that seemingly presents a problem because he's in the line of the Messiah well when we do a study we will look at this when we get to Matthew's gospel particularly but you see how God has another plan and how the line comes a different way down to the Messiah but Jehoiakim, uh, sorry, Jehoiachin, Jeconiah, is eventually taken to Babylon. So just three months he's uh, ruling and reigning, and then he lives out his days uh, in Babylon, and then he dies. And there's a finally the third son of Josiah, Zedekiah, 598 BC, he's put on the throne. Eleven years he reigns, brings us down to 587 with a final siege, and that's when Jerusalem's destroyed, and all of the the people that are left are taken to Babylon. There are a number though that flee down to Egypt. We'll mention that in a moment. Well, following that, Gedaliah is appointed by Nebuchadnezzar as governor over the territory. But very soon, the rebellious Jews assassinate him. 
So that leaves this kind of real political uh, uh, mess in the whole land here. Um, and the assassins and those that were responsible t- then flee to Egypt and they take Jeremiah along with them. Jeremiah didn't want to go. He clearly speaks against going down to Egypt. One of the early church fathers, Tertullian, relates an ancient tradition that Jeremiah was taken to Egypt and stoned to death there. But the Jewish tradition says that he escaped to Babylon and that's where he died. So we don't know where he died, but it seems that Jeremiah died as a martyr uh, because of his continual speaking God's voice to his people. And finally, people wanted to silence that. Well, as I mentioned, Josiah uh, had tried to reform, but that seemed to fade very quickly after his death. Uh, And Jeremiah seems to observe that that reform was very much an outer thing. It affected the outward actions and things, but not really the hearts. Isn't that so often the the case? You know, we we hear a lot today about these revivals going on in various places in the world. And of course, we see a lot of these things on God TV and, you know, and the revivals are supposedly changing people. And all it does is change the outward things for a while because all of a sudden everything's back to the way it was. The hearts of the people haven't really changed. In a true revival that God sends, the lives of the people really truly change. Interestingly, and this is a bit of a challenge to us, it seems that the Hebrews worshipped Jehovah very much in the same way that the Canaanite neighbours worshipped Baal. It was very much of going through the motions. How many of the people that we know that go to church on a weekly basis just go through the motions? There's no real relationship there, just like pagan religion. Well, in Jeremiah's day, the temple had very much become like a good luck charm. The idea, of course, was, well, we've got the temple, therefore God won't allow judgment to come. They thought that Jerusalem was invincible because the temple was there. Well, Jeremiah makes it very clear that God is still going to bring judgment. And it's just another aside as well. The Jews never stopped worshipping God, but they simply took up the worship and lifestyle of Balaam along with their worship of Jehovah. Isn't that often the way it is for us? It's not that we stop worshipping God, but we allow other things in. Other things that take our time and attention. You know, if you add up the, the things, the, the amount of time you spend this year doing whatever you choose to do in your spare time, how much of that time is spent in God's Word? How much of that time is spent in other things? Do you have hobbies that you spend more time on this year than you have on the Word of God? You know, it's a challenge to all of us. You know, it's not that we don't worship God. It's just that we have other things to come in and they compete for our time and attention. You know, we're kind of halfway through the year at this point. It's a great time to have another little look at ourselves and challenge ourselves. What are we doing with our time? How much of that time do we give to God? Or do we allow the other pursuits to become more important? Well, as I say, following Josiah's death, and the uh, rise of this pro-Egyptian faction in the land, uh, Jeremiah's uh, reception amongst the people changed very much. Uh, we find that he's uh, effectively banned from the temple area. He speaks a, a sermon we read in chapter 26, the first 24 verses there. And that effectively leads to this arrest of his, and he's therefore not allowed into the temple grounds from this point, is what it seems. And as a result of that, he sends Barak, his scribe, to read his sermons to the people. So Jeremiah's writing these down, he's giving it to Barak and sending him out uh, to speak to the people the things that God is laying on Jeremiah's heart. 
Alongside Jeremiah, he wasn't alone, although at times clearly he felt that way. Huldah, who's a prophetess that we read about in Second uh, Chronicles uh, 34 and so on. Um, Habakkuk also, Zephaniah in Judah as well. So there are other prophets all around this time. And interestingly as well, Ezekiel and Daniel were both also alive at this time and among the captives in Babylon. I mean, what a conference that would have made. You know, if you could have got Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah together for a Bible conference at that time, that would have been just something wonderful, wouldn't it? But, it's, you know, these individuals together, uh, again, all speaking for God in their respective situations and circumstances. <clears throat> the political background of all these things. Well, there's three kind of military crises. We looked some last time in Isaiah, the things that affected his reign. Um, in Jeremiah's time, there was a similar type of problems. There's the Battle of uh, Megiddo. That's the one we mentioned already between Josiah and Pharaoh. Second uh, Kings 23 gives a bit of an account of that. So does Second Chronicles uh, 34 to 36. Uh, the next one was the Battle of Karshemesh. Uh, again, this is really where Babylon defeats Egypt and then really becomes uh, the dominant nation. Uh, and then obviously this leads to a number of Jews uh, being deported to Babylon at, at this time as well. And then finally the fall of Jerusalem. So these battles are very much, Israel is the centre of a lot of these things. Uh, in 587, uh, for about 18 months the Babylonians had laid siege, just patiently waiting. And finally uh, they capture uh, Zedekiah as uh, taken captive. His eyes are plucked out. It's not a particularly pleasant account. But you, Jeremiah himself, we get part of the prophecy, that Zedekiah, we're told, was to never see Babylon. And yet another scripture tells us he'd be taken captive there. So you think, well, how does that work? Well, when you realize that when he was captured, his sons were killed before his eyes, his eyes were plucked out, and then he was taken to Babylon. So he never saw Babylon, but he was taken there. You realize how precise these prophecies are that we are given. Well, just as an aside, I just think it's interesting, again, from a secular point of view, during this period of time, the 6th century BC, what was going on around the world? We find that Buddha was born in India in this time, 570 BC. Uh, Confucius, also about 551 in China. Uh, in, in Persia, we have Zoroaster, uh, although there's a question about his date, but seemingly around this time. And uh, Lei Tzu, which is the founder of Taoism also. A lot of false religious ideas all springing up around about this time. Very interesting uh, period of history. <clears throat> Again, just from a historical point of view, if you want to read the, the biblical account of the time, Second Kings 22 to 25 and Second Chronicles 34 to 36 gives us a lot of the detail there. So, okay. So let's talk a little bit more about the book. Just to know, it's not arranged chronologically. In other words, we don't start at the beginning and read all the way through as if one story. Uh, we find different things are, are given to us. And it's arranged regarding the subject um, or the contents rather than just a chronology. As such, and Jeremiah's book is kind of a, a collection of his writings. Um, so we see this, and what we also have, for interesting note, is kind of the second edition. The first edition is burned by King Jehoiakim. There's a cold winter's day. He's sitting there in the palace. He's got his fire burnt. Jeremiah's reading uh, the scripture to. In fact, sorry, this is Barak. Uh, his scribes reading the scripture, uh, the Jeremiah, the words of Jeremiah spoken. And every time he gets to the end of a bit, they chop it off and throw it in the fire. And so they go back and Barak tells Jeremiah what's happened. So he writes the whole thing again. You know, 
maybe some of us have not even read through the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah kind of wrote the whole thing out twice. Um, it's it's a, just an incredible book to read, but you get the impression that Jehoiakim was such a, a desperately wicked king, no regard for God. Um, we're also told in chapter 36 that not just the words that are recorded, but they were added besides unto the many like words. So there were other things that Jeremiah spoke, but clearly what we have is that which God wanted us to have for a number of reasons. We'll talk about some of those in a moment. Well, we see we've got history, a bit of autobiography, biography, poetry and prophecy. It's a very interesting book. Uh, the first 20 chapters really refer to Jeremiah in the first person. And then from chapters 21 to the end of the book, Jeremiah is referred to in the third person. We see this kind of change. Most people think it's because at this point, Barak takes up the role of secretary in a sense. And he's recording Jeremiah's words. <clears throat> Interestingly, there's about 40 quotes or allusions from Jeremiah that we find in the New Testament. Incredibly, 20 of those are found in the book of Revelation. So Jeremiah has an incredibly important prophetic side, even for the days that we're living in. Well, Jeremiah starts to try and turn the people back to God. That's where he starts, so that the disaster could be avoided. But realizes that that's not going to happen. The people's hearts are not going to change. So then he seeks to prepare the people for the judgment because of their sin. And then finally, he dedicates himself to exposing the hypocrisy and the lies of the false priests and the false prophets and so on. Finally, we find that he seeks to help the Jews that during the captivity in Babylon had been taken away by giving them words that would comfort them and give them this kind of peace, knowing that God, that verse we were looking at this morning, that God has a plan and a purpose for them. But he also announced the coming Messiah and this new covenant as well. The surface message, and I say surface message because you're going to see that there's a number of levels to Jeremiah. There's the, what took place at the time, but as you'll see, Jeremiah very clearly speaks to our days. Well, the surface message was very much directed to the people of Judah during this period of the Babylonian dominion, leading up to the time of their, their fall and so on in 606 and subsequently 587 BC. Jeremiah was a messenger of doom in a sense, speaking of this judgment that God was going to bring because of their sin, announcing that Jerusalem would fall. But he was also a messenger of hope, reminding them that God would save the faithful remnant. God's plan has always been to bring judgment on the wicked and save those who are his. So he preached the certainty of God's judgment because of sin and contrasted it with the love and the tenderness and eternity of God's love. Of course, that's a message that transcends the ages. You know, for us, that's just as applicable today. That God is a God of judgment. He must judge sin. If God is a just God, he can't allow sin to go unpunished. And yet, he's a God of mercy. He's not willing that any should perish, Peter tells us. The book is a mirror as well. It shows that the errors of backsliding Israel are reflected in the church. You know, we have a whole section of the church that has given way to this lie of replacement theology. It's a simple idea that the promises for Israel have been forfeited. And therefore the church has inherited all those wonderful blessings and so on. It's very interesting. The people that subscribe to that position never talk about the judgments that were promised. Apparently the church don't seem to inherit the judgments. We just get the nice bits. Uh, there's a bit of inconsistency there on its own. But in one sense, the church is the new Israel. Because we're making the same mistakes. We're getting the same things wrong. We have the same problems going on. And we'll look at that in a moment. 
But don't be fooled or deceived. Israel have not been done away with. God's plan for them is very much alive. And we'll see that the book will tell the final destruction of the world's religious systems, but also it unequivocally shows that God's plan for Israel is not over. I think more than almost any other book in the Old Testament, this book just shows how important Israel is in God's plan. It's an incredible book. So we can't study everything. I'm just going to pull some highlights of things that really kind of uh, speak to me. Firstly, just want to just look at the call of Jeremiah. So we'll just go to the very first chapter. I'll just read the first few verses. So Jeremiah chapter 1. And we'll start at verse 1. So, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It also came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. And it carries on. Verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Then said I, O Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. (laughs) Just as an aside. Never tell God what you can't do. God already knows what you can't do. And God isn't interested in your ability anyway. All God is looking for is your availability. You know, how many times in Scripture do we find people that moan? Moses is a great example. You know, Moses didn't have any trouble speaking up until the point that God asked him to go and speak, and then suddenly it's a problem. You know, we often list these concerns. And, uh, well, God says, The Lord said unto him, Say not, I am a child. For thou shalt go to all that I send thee, and whatsoever I command thee thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, says the Lord. So far so good is a calling God's giving him to go and speak to people, whoever those people are. But then we read, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. I have set thee this day over the nations. And over kingdoms, to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. I, I don't think Jeremiah was expecting this at this point. You know, first of all, there's the call, and it's kind of, well, I'm not really sure I can do this. And the Lord says, no, don't, because you're young, that's no excuse. That's no, that's not, doesn't discredit you or disqualify you, because it's about God's ability. But this call is incredible. It's to nations, to kingdoms. To root out, pull down, destroy, throw down. That's not going to be a popular message that God is giving Jeremiah. But where does Jeremiah begin? What a lofty calling this is. I mean, this has got to be one of the greatest callings of any prophet in the, in the Bible. But where does Jeremiah begin? Well, you think, if the Lord gives you that kind of ministry, let's get straight down to Jerusalem. Let's go to where the action is. Or even go to Babylon and speak to the king of Babylon. Or to Egypt. And Well, Jeremiah doesn't go to Jerusalem. He starts in Anathoth. This little town. Small little town. Why? Because that's where he was when God called him. You know, it's a really important lesson for us to learn here. You know, the Bible says that we shouldn't despise the day of small beginnings. And some of us, we have these callings and we think of the greatness of where God may take us and the things he'll do. But your calling begins where you are, where God's placed you. Years ago, 
Some of you may remember a Christian singer-songwriter. He's uh, home with the Lord now, but uh, a chap by the name of Larry Norman. And I remember listening to, I was at a conference and uh, Larry Norman was speaking. And somebody said, you know, he asked a question after, it was a question and answer session. You know, Larry, you know, how do I serve God? And Larry Norman just sat there for a minute. He went, clean up your room. And everybody kind of like, oh, sorry. He said, clean up your room. He said, your mum's been asking to you, you to do it for months. He said, when God can, tr- can trust you with something simple, then he might give you something more. And it was just a, such a great, simple lesson. But start where God has placed you. You don't strive for the big thing while all the time the little thing remains undone. You know, we can be so intent on seeing others come to know the Lord, for example, that maybe we forget our own family. You know, we can be so zealous to serve God in a big way that we forget to serve Him in the little things. You know, it's, it's always a, a challenge, but, you know, there's times on a... Sunday morning, for example, I would love to be walking along the beach, listening to the waves crash against the shore, and spending that wonderful quality time with the Lord and getting ready for the service. But I've got a wife and three children, and they need to be looked after. They need things done. I can't expect Joy to do everything for the children. You know, so I get up and I'll do the washing up and I'll help with the breakfast and I'll do what I can. Because that's serving God where He's placed me. It's not about just the big things. It's not about getting delusions of grandeur. You know, and the question for you, whatever God has called you to, are you serving God in those little things? And there's a number of things that we talk, often forget about. What about your general attitude? You know, it's great if God calls you to be a great missionary or evangelist or whatever. But what about your attitude to your brothers and sisters in Christ? What about your attitude to those around you? Are you short and snappy at home when nobody else is watching? What about your vocabulary? The things you say? Does your vocabulary reflect that the Holy Spirit is working in your life? Are you an example to other people by the way you live? What about love? Love for each other? Are we bearing each other's burdens? You know, there's all sorts of great ministries that may be waiting for us that Lord will use us in. But what about the place where God's place us? It's Anathoth. I just love the name. It's just doesn't sound cool or contemporary or anything does it it just it's just one of those places it's a nothing place and that's the point god wants us to start where he's placed us with the little simple things and then god will use us in the way he wants in his timing well jeremiah spends his time there and it's tough because his people around him, the family and so on, they don't accept him, they don't want to listen. And it brings Jeremiah in chapter 12 to this point of saying, you know what God, this is a little bit tough, I'm not sure this is what I signed up for. You know, you told me I was going to go to kingdoms and nations and roots and, and pull down and all these kind of things. And you know, this isn't going all that well, you know. Well, as a result of this, Jeremiah asked this question. I have had this underlined in my Bible for many years. I think it's one of the greatest verses in the Bible. God responds to Jeremiah's question and simply says, If you've run with a footman and they have wearied thee, then how can thou contend with horses? And if in the land of peace wherein thou trusted, they did weary you, then how will you do in the swelling of Jordan? Do you get what God is saying? God's answer is quite simple. Jeremiah, you've not seen anything yet. You're struggling against the cavalry. But horses are coming. You're complaining that at the moment this is all too tough for you, but we haven't even started. We've not got out of first gear yet. And if you're going to stumble at these things, well then how 
Are you going to be used to do the things I'm going to do through you? This is kind of a, if I may use a Ron Matson phrase, this is God saying to Jeremiah to put your big boy trousers on. And this is really a kind of a, a to Jeremiah, yeah, man up. You've got to draw your strength from God. You know, the problem also in these situations, and we've all probably all been here, is, is a, a great quote from Oswald Chambers. He says, if we get out of touch with God, the sense of responsibility will be overwhelmingly crushing. I love that. Because I've been there, and I've been in those situations that it's all just too much. And I'm saying, Lord, I can't do this anymore. I can't cope with the pressure. And suddenly the Lord says, well, what are you doing anyway? And suddenly I'm reminded that actually it's not about me doing anything. It's about resting in him. You remember that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. If that's not the way it is in your life, then you're probably doing too much and not allowing him to do enough. You know, there's that um, children's um, um, story. I can't even remember which one it is now, but where, where we have the giant and the, uh, the giant gets the tree and the young chap at the back is simply sitting in the branches and it gets to the end of the giant's kind of like, wow, you helped to carry the tree. Like, no, I'm just sitting in the back. You know, he was carrying, the giant was carrying the whole way. Well, that's a little bit like it is with God. You know, God does everything. And we should just sit in the back. We're just going along for the ride. And all we should do is just trust God. We just need to be where God wants us. doesn't mean we won't have challenges. It doesn't mean we won't have trials. But it just means in all of those things, we roll it all back on him. But Jeremiah, a great example of somebody that went through situations like we have, started out great zeal and enthusiasm to serve God, and suddenly, oh, this is too tough. Well, again... If you've run with a footman and they've wearied you, how are you going to cope when it gets really tough? How are we going to cope when they really do start persecuting the church in this country? How are we going to cope when we're really not allowed to speak in our workplace about God? Or how are we going to cope when we're not allowed to speak when we're out in the streets or in the supermarkets? Well, Jeremiah picks himself up, dusts himself off, and he gets going again. Later in the book we find that he has another moment where he questions it all. And he kind of says, okay God, I've had enough. I'm not going to speak any more for you. He's like, mm, 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 mm. And he gets to the point that he says the word of God was just burning inside of him. And he gets, oh, okay Lord, I've got to speak. And he does. And he just starts speaking again. You know, and that's the way it is when the Lord puts something on your heart that you've got to share with others. That it should just be so powerful that you cannot remain silent. You know, the wonderful news of our salvation should be one of those things. That we shouldn't be able to be silent about it. When we get the opportunity. You know, I don't know about you, but I get to... I mean, I, yes, I've just come back from this wonderful conference with the pastors up in York. And it was a great time of blessing. And you know, But this week I've been walking around at work and I've been in situations on the train. I'm looking at people like, can I speak to you? Can I speak to you? you know, and it's just, Lord, open up an opportunity here. There's nothing better than sharing our faith. And God just gives us the opportunity in the words and off we go. Well, Jeremiah also speaks to us. Let me show you what I mean by this. Now, first of all, Ecclesiastes, we looked at a few weeks back. We're told there, Solomon says, The thing that has been is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Well, how true this is in a prophetic term. Hegel said this, he said, If there's one thing that history teaches us, it's that man learns nothing from history. 
I love that. The more you think about that, the more it scrambles your brain a bit. But it's true. We don't learn from the mistakes of the past. Okay, let's just go through some of these scriptures and you'll see what I mean about Jeremiah speaking to you and I right now, here this morning, 2014, in the days that we're living in. Now, first of all, chapter 1, verse 15. For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord, and they shall come and they shall set everyone his throne at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem. God is saying, judgment is coming. And against the walls thereof round about, against all the cities of Judah. And I'll utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness. So judgment's coming because of the iniquity in the land. And notice why. Because they've forsaken God. And they've burned incense to other gods. And worshipped the works of their own hands. You know, we could spend a long time talking about the way the church is burning incense to other gods. Worshipping the work of their own hands. All sorts of things going on in the name of Christ, but are just ritual. They're just games. They're just activities. Worshipping the work of their own hands. We see so much of this. Chapter 2, we read there the God speaking to Israel. He says, just picking up in the second verse, Thus says the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals. God likens uh, Israel, Judah here particularly, to his wife. And saying, yeah, we were joined together in the wilderness. It was that wonderful time when like newlyweds are joined together. Well, what are we told of the church? In the book of Ephesians, and by the way, Ephesians, the church of Ephesus, Ephesians, the whole idea of the, in the name Ephesus is this love of espousal. This church that we read about in Revelation 2, the angel of the church of Ephesus right? these things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven gold candlesticks. Nevertheless, he goes on, verse 4, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Jeremiah was having a go or speaking to the people saying, you've forgotten that we've been joined together in this wonderful relationship with God. And Jesus says the same to the church. You've forgotten that we had this relationship. Jeremiah 2, we told the priests said not, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Well, how many prophets do we have? We look at Christian television, we see so many prophesying, clearly not by God. The priests, they don't say, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law don't know God. The past has transgressed. Some of you will be familiar with this, we've shared this before, but just again, Ken Ham um, answers uh, in Genesis. Um, this was a, a poll that they uh, raised or did on the back of a, another poll that was done in America. Um, back in 2002. And the conclusion was simply uh, that many have left the church because they no longer believe the Bible is the absolute word of God. Why? Because the pastors don't believe it. Those that handle the law didn't know God. They don't know God. There was another poll that was done. This was um, to mainline Protestant clergy. Just looking at some theological issues, biblical infallibility and so on, and looking at where they stand in regard to those things. There were 7,441 ministers that were interviewed by a sociologist, uh, Jeffrey Hayden. And this is the percentages of the ministers who answers no to the following questions. Okay, so the question, the first question is, do you accept Jesus' physical resurrection as a fact? 51% of Methodist ministers said they didn't. 
35% of Episcopalian ministers said they didn't. 33 American Baptist, 30% Presbyterian, 13% American Lutheran. And don't think just because this is America, it's not the same in this country. These ministers don't accept Jesus' physical resurrection as a fact. We well, you know what Paul says, that they are most miserable. Next question. Do you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus? Methodist, 60% said no. Presbyterian, 49%. Episcopalian, 44%. American Baptist, 34%. American Lutheran, 19%. Didn't believe in the virgin birth. There was a number of questions. Just another one. Do you believe the scriptures are are the inerrant work of God in faith, history, and secular matters? 95% of Episcopalian ministers said they didn't. 87% of Methodist ministers. 82 Presbyterian and 77 American uh, Lutheran ministers. And then Baptist ministers, 67%. I mean, that's just, these are people that don't believe and trust the Bible. Just as Jeremiah said, in his day, the priests, those that should have been teaching the people, the pastors, didn't know the law. It's exactly the same in the days in which we're living in. Jeremiah 8 verse 9, we were told there, the wise men are ashamed, they're dismayed and low, and taken low. They are reject, they have rejected the word of the Lord, and what wisdom is in them. You know what? You reject God's word, and you're just speaking hot air. You're speaking your own opinions, and I'm not interested in listening to people's opinions. Everybody's got an opinion. I want to know what God says. Jeremiah also, Spoke in chapter 2, spoke of the, <clears throat> to be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You know, in the Bible, the word of God is actually represented as water. Ephesians 5.22, the washing of water by the word. You know, what we've done in our days and age, we've rejected the word of God. And we've hewn out broken systems that can't hold any water. We've got over 200 translations of the Bible in English, and yet all of those supposedly designed to make it easier to read and understand. But we have the most biblically illiterate generation imaginable. I've left it out, but there's a whole load of quite comical things that children were asked uh, about questions in the Bible, you know, the uh, the epistles were believed to be the wives of the apostles, and you know, so many things that you just, you, where do they get these ideas? You know, many Christian children, even the parents, when they're asked, they couldn't name the disciples, they couldn't name the commandments, they couldn't name some of the books of the Bible, and so on. You know, just to give you an idea of some of these broken systems that we've hewn out that can't hold water. There's a, a version of the uh, of just the Gospels, a translation. It's the five Gospels. Interestingly, it's the four Gospels and the Gospel of Thomas. That should bring alarm bells. But these people, these scholars that got together, I realize the text is a bit small, but this is all the text about what they did. They Finally, they studied, debated, and voted on each of more than 1,500 sayings in the inventory. They actually voted on what Jesus said and decided what they keep in and what they leave out. Well, another version, the New Testament, an understandable version. Yeah, we all need an understandable version, don't we? Well, first of all, they actually state, the text does not guarantee to be exactly what the Holy Spirit inspired the original writers to record, but rather represents what he, the translator, understand those writers to be saying. You know, that's a commentary. That's not a translation of the Bible. The NIV, 
I don't want to upset people here, but as a blatant lie. Because these, you'll see this in the New Testament all the way through. For the New, uh, New Testament, the best current Greek New Testament texts were used. That's not true. They use the Alexandrian manuscripts. There are so many problems with these Alexandrian manuscripts. You take the Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, there's over 9,000 differences between just those two. There are a number of problems. There's verses missed out of the NIV. There's verses that are blatantly wrong. It calls Jesus, it calls Joseph Jesus' father. No, he wasn't. God is Jesus' father. There's lots of issues. doesn't mean that we can't learn about God. I've read the NIV. I've read the whole way through the NIV. And I learned more about God by doing it. But there are errors there that we need to be aware of. Point is, as in Jeremiah's day, so in ours. We've hewn out so many broken systems. And by the way, the thing that all these have in common? Copyright. They're all designed to make money for the publishers. An inclusive version, all right? Another version of the Bible we have today. Uh, the languages into the which the Bible uh, is rendered are changing. Uh, it says, new manuscripts are discovered that are older and more reliable. That's a statement that's not true for a start. Uh, and it goes on just to talk about the way that these... Uh, in fact, let me just look at this. It just makes you sick. Um, uh, people who have disabilities are not referred to as the blind or the lame, but as people who are blind or those who are lame. Uh, the church does not assume that God is male being. In this verse, God is never referred to by a masculine pronoun. And it goes on. So rather than we have father, uh, we have the new father-mother. Uh, when Jesus is called Son of God or Son of the Blessed One, uh, the maleness of the historical person of Jesus is not relevant. Uh, but the Son's intimate relationship with the Father, uh, yeah, it's, anyway, you get the idea. We have the Renovare uh, Study Bible. Um, this is another one of these just terrible uh, supposed Bibles. It's not a Bible at all. It's just somebody's opinion of what they think the Bible said. What concerns me about I mean, this, the, the chap that wrote this, uh, the, we've got um, Richard Foster, uh, and also Eugene Peterson, uh, who wrote the message, um, which is another very dangerous version. Um, this is just a quote on one of the, the reviews of it. We use this book uh, as a gift for high school graduate, and, and use it again with future graduates. It was also recommended by our pastor. What is your pastor doing? Clearly not reading the Bible. It classes, by the way, the first 11 chapters as Hebrew myth. Totally dismisses creation and a number of other things. So look, we've got problems just as Jeremiah had. And you know, in Jeremiah's day, he says that Israel had become something they shouldn't have been. He says in chapter 221, Yet I have planted thee a noble vine, wholly a right seed. How then are thou turned into a degenerate plant, of a strange vine unto me. What he's saying is, I planted you. You should have grown into this wonderful vine, a vine that should have brought the knowledge of God to the world. But you've become something different. Well, that's exactly what we find in Matthew 13. Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among the herbs. Yeah, herbs. It should grow to a few feet high. That's all it should do. But this one becomes a tree, something it was never designed to be. So the birds of the air, which in the opening portion of Matthew 13, we're told are the ministers of Satan, come and lodge in the branches. The church has become something it was never intended to be. And particularly because through the Catholic Church, this whole idea of uh, political power as well as religious, and the church has exerted all sorts of powers that it was never invested with. We see the same things going on. Jeremiah 2, verse 22. For though thou wash thee with nitre, that is nitric acid, effectively, and take thee much soap, 
Yet thy iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord. In other words, you're not going to cleanse this or get it out. What a contrast to what we looked at last week in Isaiah, where we're told, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they should be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they should be as wool. What's the difference? Well, the difference is repentance. No repentance, no forgiveness. And repentance has largely been removed from the modern gospel. Jeremiah was warning the people, saying, As a thief is ashamed when he's found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets. Doesn't that ring a bell? Because in Revelation we're told that Jesus will come as a thief. And an hour you don't know. In Thessalonians the same. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Verse 4 says, um, But you are not in darkness, and that day should overtake you as a thief. The ideas and the themes are incredible as you look at what was going on in Jeremiah's day and now. In Jeremiah's day, they would say to a stock, this is chapter 2, verse 27, Thou art my father, and to a stone, and thou hast brought me forth. For they have turned their back unto me. This is, you know, first of all here, that they're looking at creation, and credited creation, with the work of creation, looking at a, a stone or a rock or a tree stump or whatever, and calling it their gods. Well, that's just as bad as we have today. The whole idea of evolution is rained on the rocks for millions of years, and we've come from the rocks. Well, that's what they were saying. Saying to a stone, Thou hast brought me forth. Our universities, our school system around this country does exactly the same thing. Sadly, the churches have often followed suit. You know, you remember the 150th anniversary of Origin of the Species a few years back. The C of E apologised to Darwin. <laughs> Incredible. But also notice that because of all these things that will come upon them, in the time of their trouble, they'll arise and say, save us. Or if I may paraphrase that, they'll say, Lord, Lord. Because that's exactly the same thing. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils and, you know, they've done wonderful spiritual things. They've done some good works. What is it that God says? I never knew you. Depart from me, you work iniquity. Jeremiah 2.35 says, Yet thou sayest, because I am innocent, surely this anger shall turn from me. Because I will plead with thee. Because thou sayest, I have not sinned. <laughs> Well, in Revelation 3.17, talking of the church of Laodicea, because thou sayest, I am rich, increased with goods, have need of nothing, everything's fine. Just as it was in Jeremiah's day, they didn't think there was a problem. They didn't think they had sin. They didn't want to hear about sin anyway. Of course, God says to the church of Laodicea, that you're wretched, miserable, poor, poor, blind, and naked. You know, the cry of the apostate church is exactly the same as the apostates in Israel. The idea that judgment was coming. Jeremiah made it very clear. God says, will he reserve his anger forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, thou hast spoken and done evil. Uh, things as thou could. God is going to bring judgment. And just as we're told in Peter, the Lord is not slack concerning his judgment. It will come. There was a final warning effectively given. And that was declaring Judah, publishing Jerusalem, say, blow the trumpet in the land, cry, gather together and assemble uh, yourselves. Let us go into the defense cities, set up the standard towards Zion, retire, stay not, for I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction. What is God saying? He's saying to the people of the land, it's time to leave. Go to the place of safety. And how's it going to be marked? By the blowing of a trumpet. You see, 
There's a declaration of coming judgment. A trumpet is going to be blown. A cry to gather together. The faithful then depart for their place of safety, their defense cities. Do you think that's a picture of the rapture? certainly seems like it, doesn't it? Because that's exactly what the New Testament tells us. That judgment is coming. There will be this trumpet blown. We'll be gathered together, called up to the Lord in the air. Psalm 27 verse 5 says, For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. There's many other prophetic overtones of the rapture all through the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 5, we're told, They have belied the Lord and said, It is not he, neither shall evil come upon us, neither shall we see sword or famine, and the prophets shall become wind, and the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done unto them. <clears throat> to whom... Shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot hear. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. A Calvary pastor, a friend of mine, was speaking to a minister uh, about a particular issue. And this minister just turned back and said, The trouble with you is that you put too much trust in that book. <laughs> this is a minister of a church speaking to another Calvary pastor. At that point, the Calvary pastor just shook his head and walked away. He said, I realize it wasn't going anywhere at that point. Yeah, But it's true, you know, they have no delight in God's word. Jeremiah 6 tells us, verse 13, From the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. Interesting, isn't it? And from uh, and, and the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. In other words, They've tried to smooth everything over, make everything okay by saying, don't worry, there'll be peace. Peace, peace. Well, what is it we find in the New Testament? First Thessalonians 5.3, For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. One of the leading New Age gurus, Neil Donald Walsh, some years ago established a five steps to peace. Okay. Well, not so long ago, Rick Warren and Robert Schuller and a number of others kind of put together their five-point peace plan. Robert Schuller said this. Robert Schuller had, uh, for a long, long time, one of the largest television ministries worldwide, evangelist ministries. He said this, I'm dreaming a bold, impossible dream that positive-thinking believers in God, probably that, sorry, um, positive-thinking believers in God will rise above the illusions that our sectarian religions have imposed on the world, and that leaders of the major faiths will rise above doctrinal idiosyncrasies, choosing not to focus on disagreements, but rather to be to transcend diversive dogmas to work together to bring peace. Yeah. Well, you know what? You're going to get exactly what you're looking for, but it is not God's way. There's a narrow way, and there's a very wide way. This is the wide way. Rick Warren, this has been quoted by Don Koenig here. Don Koenig's a good man, has done conferences with Chuck Miller and others. But he said this, Rick Warren claims he'll bring about this peace plan with a billion-man army. His billion-man army from where, I might ask? There are only several hundred million true Christians on the whole earth. I guess General Warren's plan is to draft pseudo-Christians and Muslims into his billion-man army and expect everyone to follow his marching orders. You know, that's not so cynical as it may sound. 
This is, let me just read this to you. Uh, the Reverend Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church in Lake Forest and one of America's most influential Christian leaders, has embarked on an effort to heal divisions, divisions between evangelical Christians and Muslims. By partnering with Southern Californian mosques and proposing a set of theological principles that include its uh, acknowledging that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. The men presented a document they co-authored outlining points of agreement between Islam and Christianity. The document affirms that Christians and Muslims believe in one God and share two central commandments, love of God and love of neighbour. The document also commits both faiths to three goals, making friends with each other, building peace and working on social, or sorry, shared social service projects. The document quotes side-by-side verses from the Bible and the Quran to illustrate its claims. Uh, Rick Warren also is an advisor on the Tony Blair Faith uh, Foundation or Interfaith Foundation as it is. Uh, you know, these things are going on around us. Uh, we need to be aware of it. But my point this morning is what was going on in Jeremiah's day? Exactly the same is going on now. The people of Jerusalem, the false prophets, the priests were saying, peace, peace. And the same thing's happening. We need to be aware of it. They didn't have any shame either in those days. You know, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed at all. Neither could they blush. Well, we have the same problem, don't we? I mean, we don't need to get into this big discussion, but you look at what's going on. This is a quote from uh, Bishop Robertson. Uh, he was the, uh, one of the first in America openly gay bishops. He makes this comment. Uh, Bishop Robinson, who married his partner, Mark, said that he'd come to reconcile his sexuality with his faith and could feel God's light and God's love ooze over me like warm butter. Somebody I know was going through for Methodist ordination. Uh, the final uh, service I had recently, um, they were told that they were to go and take communion from a lesbian minister. You know, are they ashamed? No, they're not ashamed. Jeremiah 6.17, also I set a watchman over you saying, hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not hear. Again, not just singling out Rick Warren here, but he kind of sets himself up for it. So in the Purpose Driven Life, he said this, when the disciples wanted to talk about prophecy, Jesus quickly switched the conversation to evangelism. He said, in essence, the details of my return are none of your business. No, Rick, he didn't. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus warned repeatedly and gave great detail about the events of his return. And we... Put prophecy to one side at our peril. But the, the, just as in Jeremiah's day, they didn't want to hear the sound of the trumpet again. Therefore, the day, behold, the days come, says the Lord, that it shall no, be called, no more be called Tophet, nor the valley of the son of Himon, but the valley of slaughter. For they shall bury in Tophet till there be no place. And the carcasses of this people shall be meat for the fowls of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and none shall fray them away. Then will I cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. That should bring a few little kind of triggers for you because it's very similar wording to that which we find in Revelation 17 and 18 about the destruction of this false religious system. Just as God's judgment then came upon apostate Jerusalem, so God's judgment will come on this apostate religious system that bears his name. I want to just take you through this. Some of you have seen this before. But just showing the parallels of these things. You know, Israel started with this period of 38 years in the wilderness. Two years at Sinai as part of their 40-year journey, but then 38 years in wandering. The church has a period of 38 years from AD 32 to AD 70 
before it's dispersed around the world. That's that time of espousal. Israel went on to a time of victory, but through a time of war, and entered the promised land. Well, the church, we read in the second letter in Revelation, uh, chapter 2, the church of Smyrna, they obtained victory through a time of war, through suffering, through persecution. But then Israel entered the promised land, and there was this complacency that brought their defeat the time of the judges embracing the world well the church enters again that time of complacency as suddenly persecution ends Constantine allows Christians to use pagan buildings and the church becomes married to the world just the same then there was the rejection of theocracy God being their king they wanted a man to rule over them the nation chose Saul the church ended up with the pope The head of the world empire also becoming the head of the church. Rejecting God. We now have a man who's heading up the church. That then led to the division of the kingdom in Israel. Solomon's apostasy led to Israel in the north and then Judah in the south. Israel are commended for their good works, but Judah are not commended at all because they should have got it right. They weren't perfect. They didn't go far enough in their reforms. You know, the church is the same. We get to the division of the church at the time of the Reformation. We end up with the Catholic Church getting into all sorts of idolatry and yet commended for their good works. The Protestant Church, nothing good is said about them. If you look in Revelation 2, chapter 3, the letter to Sardis. Well, then we get to the judgment that's foretold on Israel, the faithful being taken to Babylon. God also is told of a judgment that is coming on this world and on the church. Judgment must begin at the house of God, Peter tells us. You know, but the faithful will be raptured. They'll be taken to a place of safety. And then finally, the apostates and the false prophets were destroyed. Jerusalem was burned with fire. And the book of Revelation makes it very clear, Matthew 7, lots of other portions of scripture we can refer to, to show that this false religious system that is gaining momentum, that is drawing all religions in together, That will ultimately be destroyed as well. But interestingly enough, the faithful in Israel returned to inherit the land and a temple was built that the Messiah would teach from. Well, you know what? The same is true for us. Those that are taken at the time of the rapture to be with the Lord will come back. They will inherit the land and another temple will be built that the Messiah will teach from. You see God's incredible plan through all of these things. Just a couple of scriptures just to draw your attention to. Jeremiah 29.10 is where we're told of this period of 70 years upon the nation. This period of servitude of the nation when they be taken away. So in 606 BC we have the 70 years that begins coming through to 537. The decree of Cyrus. We have the steel of Cyrus in the British Museum confirming these things. Um, that This period of, of history uh, where Israel were taken to uh, Babylon in the captivity. Jeremiah 25.11 is where we have the reference to another period of 70 years referred to as the desolations of Jerusalem. Okay, So again the land this time shall be desolate. 70 years. So this then is our second period of 70 years, starting in 587 BC all the way down to 518. This is the period of the time of the prophet Haggai and so on. And then the decree of Darius uh, is the one, the decree that ends that period of time. Just a couple of scriptures to mention about Israel's place, uh, and then we'll move on to Lamentations in just a second. The future of Israel. Look at this. This is Jeremiah 16. Therefore, Begin at verse 14. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord lives that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. 
But the Lord lives that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. And I will bring them again into their own land and give unto their, uh, I gave unto their fathers. Behold, I will send for many fishes, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And after I will send for many hunters and they shall hunt uh, them from every mountain, from every hill and for the holes of the rocks. For my eyes are upon all their ways. They are not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity hid from mine eyes. And first I will recompense their iniquity and their sin double. Again, an exact likeness because they have defiled my land. Jeremiah 31 says this, verse 35. Thus says the Lord which gave the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of moon and the stars for a light by night which divides the sea when the waves thereof roar the Lord of hosts is his name if those ordinances depart from before me says the Lord then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever you know anybody that challenges you or asks about the issue of replacement theology direct them to the book of Jeremiah there's some scriptures here just for you to, to look at this will be in the slides you can have a look at afterwards um, just have a look at those every one of those makes it abundantly clear that God has not finished with Israel so to conclude the book of Jeremiah what is the great lesson that we can learn from this well I would say Jeremiah 17 5 through 9 thus says the Lord cursed be the man that trusts in man and makes flesh his arm and whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land and not inhabited. Blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, and spreads out a root by the river, and shall not see when he comes, but a leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? What a great scripture those things are. You know, to remind us not to trust flesh, not to trust man's opinion, but to trust God. And that warning that our heart is deceitful. But if we want to bear fruit, then we'll do it by trusting God. Okay. Two minutes and we're done because I just want to give you a quick overview of Lamentations just so that you've got this for the record. It's carrying on the same theme. This kind of funeral dirge of Jerusalem. In the Hebrew Bible, it's listed among five roles called Migaleth, uh, along with Ruth, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes and Lamentations. And they're used on special occasions. Uh, it's read in the synagogues annually on the ninth day of Av, which is about July time, to commemorate the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. And it's still used by Jews today at the Wailing Wall. They'll read verses from this book. So let me just give you a brief, a brief kind of structure of the book, which may help with your personal study. Basically, we can split it into five stanzas, if you like, five little sections. Firstly, Jerusalem is like a widow weeping, mourning in solitude. And we see the desolation of Jerusalem, the sin brings suffering. There's an appeal made to passers-by for sympathy. Of course, they get none. And then a prayer to God for mercy and justice. Well, the second stanza... Quite simply, the city is a veiled woman. She's mourning. She realizes it's God who's punished her. Her destruction is the act of God. Horrors of desolation and famine, the guilt of the false prophets, they that pass by reproach her. That's the response she gets. But God is vindicated in what he's doing. And then there's the prayer of the survivors. The third stanza, if you like, is this, that Jerusalem's bitter mourning 
is represented by the weeping prophet by Jeremiah himself. There's the lament of the afflicted. His hope amidst, amidst all the suffering anyway. That God is just in his discipline. There's a call for conversion, sorrows of sin, and appeal to the Lord for help. The fourth one. The city represented as gold, but has become tarnished and dimmed in a desolation. Again, the horrors of the siege and the, the cause of their judgment, the corrupt religious leaders. God was justified in his judgments. The vanity of human helpers, past achievements and so on. You know, none of those things help us. But also a reference to the fact that Edom shall not escape. Well, look at that when we get to some of the minor prophets. Edom are going to be judged because of the way they put the boot in effectively when Israel were being uh, overrun by the Babylonians rather than help them or lend any support Edom, their brother just looked on and laughed and actually did even worse and then finally the fifth stanza the city is represented as one appealing for mercy an appeal for mercy in their calamity and the disasters of sin and appeal to the Lord of the universe so that's hopefully gives you a little bit of a guide if you want to take through Lamentations not a very long book and you you five chapters or so so just read through uh, and uh, you'll be able to see again the heart of Jeremiah being poured out so just to close then from one verse or three verses as it is, but from Lamentations, one section. And we just read this again, just wonderful scripture. This I recall to mind. Therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and bring glory to your name that your faithfulness, your compassion, your mercy is without end. Oh Lord, we just thank you for these things. Father, help us to learn these lessons from Jeremiah. Help us, Lord, to be reminded that even though at times we struggle and if we feel like giving in, the Lord, we need to roll it back on you. Lord, the days we live in are just so similar to the days Jeremiah lived in. Give us the heart that he had the passion, the love, the zeal he had for you and for your word. And Father, we pray that you would use us to be salt and light in this world, in the days that we live in. Father, help us to be reminded that we are to be used where we have been called. And you'll take care of the rest. Lord, we just thank you for this time this morning. Father, as we go from here this day, we pray your blessing upon us. Keep us close to you, we ask, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.